I love watching the Olympics. You probably do too. Every four years, I tune in to watch the world's best athletes compete against one another in all kinds of events. And whether it's track and field or diving or swimming or cycling or gymnastics, watching the best of the best go head to head is almost always exciting. I mean, the skill level is so high and there's so little difference between the best in one sport and those who finish in runner-up positions. The difference between winning the gold medal and, and finishing with a silver or bronze medal can be so close that the margin of victory is sometimes measured in tenths of a second or tenths of a point. In some cases, it's hundredths of a second or hundredths of a point. I mean, think about that. The difference between the greatest in their event and the runner-up can be so slim that it's difficult to measure. And it's not only the Olympics where, where the margin of victory can be incredibly small. Take a NASCAR race. Sometimes a NASCAR race is decided by a very short distance. I mean, think about it. Drivers race around a track for 400, 500 miles, and the margin of victory can be a few yards, sometimes as little as a car length. After 500 miles, that is close. And anybody who's watched the Kentucky Derby knows that the winner of a mile and a quarter horse race can be determined by as little as a few inches. In fact, that's where we've come up with the terms like the, the champion horse won by a nose or he won with a photo finish. You get the point. Sometimes the difference between the greatest and those finishing just outside of that designation of the greatest, it can be a very small gap. There can be very little difference between them. I mean, the Olympic athlete that finishes with a silver or bronze medal is still a world-class athlete with incredible talent, a, a stellar athlete by all accounts. And the, the second place finisher in a 500-mile car race around an oval track is still a fantastically skilled driver, controlling his car upwards of 200 miles an hour. And the, the horse that loses by a nose to that winner who ends up in the winner's circle with a, a wreath of roses thrown on its back is still an amazing racehorse. You know, I, I kind of feel for these runner-up finishers because they often don't get the recognition or the attention they deserve because they finished just outside of that designation as the greatest. In fact, it compelled me to choose my topic for the next couple of weeks of messages. I mean, we just completed an eight-week study on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul designated love as the greatest, the greatest quality in the life of a Christ follower. No argument. Paul uses the entire chapter, chapter 13, to describe how love should be expressed through the life of anyone who claims to follow Jesus. The apostle declares that love should literally define the very life of a Christ follower. He sums up this love chapter with this verse. It reads, and now these three qualities remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. There's no argument here. Love is the greatest. 
I just want to bring your attention to the two essential qualities of a Christ follower that are mentioned in this same verse. The two attributes that finish just outside of the de designation of greatest of these. I'm talking about the qualities of faith and hope, and I want us to focus on faith and hope over the next couple of weeks. Both immensely significant, absolutely essential qualities for anyone who follows Jesus. We won't spend eight weeks, but certainly these two qualities, faith and hope, are worth a week or two of our focus. At least, that's my plan. So let's dive in. The significance of faith in our relationship with God, it cannot be overstated. In fact, if you were take, to take the Apostle Paul's writings as a whole, you would most likely conclude that faith is the greatest attribute of one who follows Jesus. Not love, but faith. Uh, if not for his statement at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where he clearly designates love as the greatest. But you would otherwise most likely conclude that faith trumps love as the greatest quality for a believer. Consider this. Faith is referenced 458 times throughout the Bible, including a couple of bold, rather jarring statements concerning the importance and the centrality of faith. Centrality of faith to a person's relationship with God, to our salvation, and to how our lives are to be reflect Jesus in the way we live. Here are just three verses that underline the significance of faith in the life of a Christ follower. First is Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 reads this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I mean, there's no mincing of words here. You can't say it much straighter than that. Faith is absolutely necessary if we are to live a life that's pleasing to God. And then there's Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. A familiar verse declaring that our salvation is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. But this verse clarifies that it is through our faith, through what we believe, that this gift is received. Our faith in Jesus' death on the cross as sufficient to forgive our sins is the central truth of our salvation. This gift of salvation is received by faith. And then consider Galatians 5, 6. It reads this way. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The apostle Paul wrote this, the same apostle who wrote that love is the greatest thing. But here he clarifies that it is your acts of love expressed that demonstrate the faith that's within you. See, so your faith is the basis for the love you express. Your faith is inextricably linked to the way you express love. It is your faith in action. So now you see why I had to talk about faith as a follow-up to our series on love. You can't separate the two as a Christ follower. The problem is this. Faith is such a, like a, a big topic. There's no way to cover it in just a week or two. So my plan, my plan is just to take a small slice of the topic of faith and try to make it relevant and practical for our lives today. 
So I want to talk about three elements of faith, three practices commanded by Jesus that require faith. Three practices that make no sense to a person who does not have faith in Jesus or his word. And then I'll encourage us on how we can best express this faith through love. Since the Apostle Paul declares, it's the only thing that matters anyway. So let's start with a working definition of what we're talking about. A simple definition of faith for us today is this. Faith is trust in someone or something that cannot be proved. It's believing in something you cannot see. Faith is believing something to be true, acting on that truth, even though you can't prove it. You can't prove it to be true. Well, I want us to look at three practices commanded by Jesus for his followers that make no sense to someone who does not embrace faith. In fact, these three practices seem impractical, counterintuitive, and unreasonable to someone who does not believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, or that his word is truth for today. Those of us have, who have faith in Jesus, see, we believe that God's word is true. It is truth for today. We believe his ways are higher. And when circumstances, when in circumstances where our thinking and God's thinking differs, we defer to him as the ultimate authority, knowing far better than we, because his infinite wisdom is superior to our faulty, incomplete, and finite thinking. See, people of faith, we let God interpret our circumstances rather than allowing our circumstances to interpret the truth. So here they are. Here are the three practices Jesus commanded his followers to obey that require faith. Again, they make no sense to someone who does not believe, who does not have faith, but are foundational to those of us who follow Jesus. Jesus taught this, that prayer is a lifestyle. He taught that it is greater to serve than be served. And Jesus taught his followers to love everyone, even those who do not love you back. Jesus commanded and modeled these three practices as normal behavior for those who have faith in him. And more than countercultural, these practices are considered downright foolish or unreasonable to someone who does not embrace the faith we have. Pray, serve, love. Three faith practices of a Christ follower. Let's take them one at a time, and we'll see how Jesus taught and modeled these faith practices so we can represent him in a way that expresses our faith through love to a watching world. So Jesus modeled the life of prayer while he walked the earth here for 33 years. Scripture tells us that he often got up early in the morning while it was still dark to be alone and pray with his heavenly father. He prayed in such a fresh and personal way that his disciples begged him to teach them how to pray like he did. He modeled a prayer life that was born out of relationship to God rather than duty to God. A relationship with God rather than duty to God. Big difference. It both intrigued and inspired those who hung around him. Jesus not only modeled prayer as a lifestyle, but he taught on the power and necessity of prayer in the life of anyone who has a relationship with God. See, even though this verse wasn't written yet, 
Jesus' life demonstrated a rock-solid belief in the truth that's found in James 5.16. James 5.16 reads like this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person, the person of faith, is powerful and effective. See, Jesus taught that prayers offered in faith can bring about healing, miracles, deliverance, transformation. Jesus taught that God hears our prayers and responds to the faith evident behind our prayers. On several occasions, Scripture records that God responded to people of faith who prayed by saying, I have heard your prayers, or I have heard the prayers of my people. And then God took action. Jesus taught that God hears and responds to our prayers. I need to remind you of how impractical and unreasonable the idea of prayer is to a person who does not have faith. The notion of a benevolent, loving God who actually listens to our prayers and responds, I mean, it's a far-fetched fantasy to someone who does not have faith. It's nonsense to someone who doesn't believe. At best, they see prayer as, a, as positive self-talk, a kind of mind game people play to, to calm fears or, or create a positive mindset so they can move forward with some hope and some energy in their life. And they'll concede that it may be valuable, it may be helpful in, the, in that respect. But at worst, at worst, they think people who pray are self-deceived, right? Speaking to some mythical supreme being who, who's either not there or certainly not interested, and it demonstrates a thinking built on false hope and fantasy and not reality. That is how illogical and how unreasonable prayer is and viewed by someone who does not embrace faith. But I'm here to remind you of how Jesus views prayer and his command to those who have put their faith in him, his command to develop a lifestyle of prayer. See, because Jesus believes, as do those of us with faith, as we read earlier from James 5, 16, the prayer of a person of faith is powerful. It's powerful and effective. In fact, more than you know. Can I say it that way? This verse has more truth in it than you and I realize. And I'm here to, to declare that the prayer of a person of faith is powerful and effective. I learned this truth firsthand some years ago through the most unusual of circumstances. Unusual, but I assure you, absolutely true. A number of years ago, when my, when my wife and I first lived in Fairfield and I served at, as a youth pastor at another church, uh, we made friends with all of our immediate neighbors. Uh, as, as new people on the block, as the new couple on the block, we made it our mission to get to know all the neighbors, right? To befriend them, to serve them, to be a light for Jesus in the neighborhood. We became fast friends with most of our neighbors. Some came to the church, some didn't. It didn't matter. After a few months, we were shocked to find out that one of our neighbors was a witch. A witch. I'm not talking about someone who is crabby and cranky and no fun to be around like, ah, oh, she's a real witch. No, I'm talking about a card-carrying, spell-casting, Satan-worshipping, demonically-empowered witch. I mean, the real deal. 
One of our neighbors had been in our house many times. She had eaten with us many times. And we were becoming close friends with this woman, with this witch. And we had no idea. At the same time, she was becoming intrigued by the light that she saw in us. And through a series of circumstances, uh, way too much to detail for our purposes today, another pastor and I were able to deliver this woman from the demons who had bound her, from the evil spirits who had possessed her. I mean, Jesus freed her. Jesus freed her, just like you read in your Bible, right out of the Gospels. It was amazing. It was awesome. Watching the power of God vanquish the evil spirits who had controlled this woman for decades. I mean, Jesus freed her, saved her, and put his spirit inside her. I mean, she was a new creation. She had gone from darkness to light, from death to life, right before my eyes probably the greatest faith-building experience of my life. And she became, she became a close friend of ours following this transformation, partly because she was so thankful for her freedom and partly because she had so much to learn. She was so eager to grow. She had been in darkness for so long. One thing we did with her right away was to help her renounce and undo the evil she had done previously under the direction and power of these demonic spirits. So we destroyed amulets, crystals, altars, all kinds of items and books dealing with the occult and witchcraft. I mean, it was a real eye-opener for this new youth pastor. We also had her renounce and undo any curses that she had put on people. I mean, a long list of people. Curses to oppress people and bring misery, pain, brokenness, and strife to people. Anything to steal people's hope and kill their joy. I remind you that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So during this time of helping her make things right, I asked this woman, this formerly demonized woman and now a friend, if she had ever put a curse on my wife and me. And I'll never forget her reply. And it's the takeaway I want you to leave with from this wild story. When I asked her if she had ever put a curse on Margie and me, her response was this. She says, oh, I tried. I tried, but I couldn't. You had too much prayer cover. Those were her words. You had too much prayer cover. There were too many people praying for you. I, I, I couldn't make a curse land and stick. That's what she said. Note that she didn't say it was because my own prayer life was too strong or it was because I was a pastor or because we had some special gifting or anointing. None of that. She said that the power of the enemy was rendered impotent and ineffective because too many ordinary people of faith we're praying for my wife and me. Think of it. There were too many parents of teenagers who were praying for the new youth pastor and his wife because clearly they were in over their head. That was reality. And yet God heard their prayers and vanquished the enemy's schemes just like he does every time. He did it once again 
because God hears and responds to our prayers. So I'm here to tell you, and all heaven and hell would tell you the same thing, that the prayer of a person of faith is powerful and effective. I mean, more than you know, more than you realize. So I ask you, is your prayer powerful enough to thwart the enemy's schemes? Definitely. Powerful enough to save that wayward son or daughter? Certainly. Powerful enough to heal that pain or fix that problem, change that situation, or bring peace where there's currently stress and anxiety? For sure. The prayers of those with faith are powerful and effective. You and I just need to be convinced of this truth. Be as convinced of this truth as heaven and hell are. They know it's true. They know it's true. You and I just need to believe it. Your faith is expressed through love when you pray for people. It's that simple. Your faith is expressed through love when you pray for people. So pray blessing over people. Pray encouragement for people. Pray comfort for people. Pray covering for people. You never know how effective it can be. Your prayers are powerful and effective. See, your faith is expressed through love when you pray for others. And God hears your prayers and takes action. It's the truth for you and me today. So what do you say, church? I say we obey Jesus and we develop a lifestyle of prayer because God will respond and answer. So before I close, I want to encourage you to think about how to practically apply what you've heard today. And, and the best thing you could do would be to have a conversation with a friend or a family member or maybe your backyard church group. Talk to somebody. Make some practical application of the truth you've heard. That would be the best thing you could do. So let me give you a couple of applica application questions maybe to get your discussion started. Maybe you can start by sharing a time when you were motivated to pray because you saw God answer prayer. In fact, that would be a great way to start. Start with a time when you saw God answer a prayer and it motivated you to pray. Those testimonies are great. They are powerful. Start there. And then maybe you could proceed to ask this question of one another. Would you describe your current prayer life as one based on your relationship with God or out of duty to God? I remind you that God, Jesus, he had a prayer life that was based on a relationship with God. So talk about that. Talk about maybe some changes you need to make. And then you can move on to the, the third question, real practical. Who do you need to start praying for regularly? Who do you need to start praying for to pray blessing and encouragement and comfort and healing and covering? And then make a plan. Make a plan and start to pray. So Father in heaven, we thank you that you not only listen, but you respond. 
you have made it that our prayers are powerful and effective, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Thank you, God, that you value us that much, that we are that privileged. Help us as we develop a lifestyle of prayer, as we demonstrate faith expressed in love by praying for others. That's our desire this morning. Help us, God, because we want to honor you and it would give us great joy. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.